The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, different fathers want different things on Father's Day. And one of the dads in the congregation uh, looked at me as I was walking up here today and said, you better bring it today. So... I hope I'm able to bring it. Um, If not, I I trust that there will be forgiveness. I I am glad, uh, thankful, especially during summer seasons of travel, that we get to bring uh, the whole service to those who are here as well as those who are traveling. Uh, That's one of the positive effects. If you're looking for one positive thing from COVID, it is that you can still worship with us when you're on the road. And so welcome those of you who are here. Welcome those of you who are traveling. Grateful, as always, to be able to open the scriptures and talk about them. It's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, like David Filson earlier. And uh, I'll start this way. Uh, I'd like to paint a picture. Imagine that there is a feast and the host is a five-star chef wanting to have people that he really cares about uh, over to his home to cook a wonderful feast for them. There's a charcuterie board. I don't know about you all, but I didn't even know what a charcuterie board was until I moved to Nashville. It's a big deal here. Um, There was fabulous salad. For those of you who like salad, there's prime rib on the table, homemade bread, delicious sides. It was a feast fit for kings and queens. And the one thing that the host did, the five-star chef host did, was asked one of the guests if they could bring dessert. And so the guest brought dessert, and they all enjoyed the feast. It was fabulous. And then it came time for dessert, and the host said, so-and-so has brought dessert. What is dessert? Well, the guest said, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to spring it on you. I'm going to help us all finish this evening off with, with something especially wonderful and creative. And the guest brings out homemade ice cream and tops it with mustard. 
And because everybody wants to be polite, because nobody wants to rock the boat or rattle anybody's cage, everybody politely eats the dessert. And for everyone there, it ruins the entire meal. Because when you eat ice cream covered with mustard, you forget about the prime rib you just had. You forget about everything. This is what happens when people try to reinvent God. When people try to reinvent truth. When people get too creative in their ideas about the Creator. When we become revisionist, when we try to fashion a new and improved version of God for ourselves and the people around us, it ends up ruining the whole meal. And that's what happens here in the famous golden calf event. God is both host and feast for the people of Israel. He's shown them some incredible signs, given them access to some wonderful things, like a voice coming out of a burning bush, like a cloud that they can follow by day, and a fire, a pillar of fire that they can follow by night representing the presence of God, like a sea being split in two so the people of Israel can walk right through it and be rescued from those who've been oppressing them for centuries like delicious bread raining down every morning from the sky for them to eat, and delicious quail uh, being provided for them in the middle of the desert where quail don't exist every single night to remind them that God is there and that God loves them and wants to bless and enrich them. Like the presence of God that's with them all the time. Like the promises of God that things are only going to get better. Your best days are always ahead of you. There's a land flowing with milk and honey awaiting you. And no matter how hard things get now, you have all of this goodness and all of this glory and all of this feasting to look forward to. And so the setting is right now, Moses is up on the mountain by himself hearing from God getting messages from God to bring back to the people, and the people become impatient. And so in steps Aaron, a lot like the guest at the dinner party who brought the ice cream covered with mustard. And he puts together a bad combination as well. He ruins people's experience of God and knowledge of God by reinvention by reimagination, by being a little bit too progressive in his thoughts about God. So let's look at three things. What do people do? And this isn't just Israel. This is all people. What does God do? And then what do true fathers or leaders do? What do people do? People tend to corrupt the worship of God. How do people tend to corrupt the worship of God? By not worshiping Him. By reinventing Him into our own likeness and into our own liking. Refashioning Him. So in the 20th chapter of Exodus, which we have skipped for now, but we're going to go back to in the second half of this series. when We're, going to, we're talking about the life of Moses. Now we're going to talk about the law of Moses in the second half of the series. But they've already had, at this point, they've already had given to them the Ten Commandments. 
The first of which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second of which is that they need to worship God in God's way. And, and they need to not worship the true God in false ways that God has not authorized. So what Aaron does is he tells the people of Israel to pool all their gold, their jewelry, and any, you know, anything that's made out of gold, together in one central place, and then they, they put fire under the gold to melt it, and then Aaron sculpts it. Apparently, he's a very gifted sculptor, and, he's, and apparently, he has a high pain tolerance because he, he sculpts this hot metal into the form of a calf or a bull and said, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This mirrors, this act of, of fashioning a golden calf mirrors the idolatry, the false worship of Egypt where they came from, where they had been held in captivity for 400 years. Egypt at that time was filled with bovine images, bovine, you know, cows and bulls and the like. They had images of cow heads, of bull horns. They had a god that they had made up that they called Ra, which was a calf with golden skin, golden exterior. The Egyptians also had the apis bull, which was the ultimate image of what they valued and treasured and worshipped the most. Wealth and power. Wealth hence the gold, power, hence the choice of, of a bull or of a calf, a very powerful animal. And so what Egypt is wanting from Aaron and what Aaron is willing to give them is a worldview that is not from God but from the world. Might is right. If we can't have power right now, if we can't have wealth right now, at least give us an image that resembles both. And that's exactly what he does. Like we've said in, in uh, previous weeks, it only took a few hours to take, for God to take Israel out of Egypt, but it's going to take 40 years for God to take Egypt out of Israel. Listen to how Aaron describes this golden calf. It's in both verses 4 and verse 8. These are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Why plural? I thought it, it, he only made one calf. Well, there's a trinity that the golden calf represents. Like I said, wealth, hence the gold, power, hence the bull, also sex. There were sex cults in Egypt, and, and the bovine image was a very common image in the sex cults. If we look at verse 6, the, the, the word revelry is used, and, and the Hebrew word behind that indicates the activity of an orgy that Israel is having together out apparently in the wilderness around this golden calf. So instead of disowning God altogether, they, they don't completely disown Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, they reinvent him into something that feels more familiar, more controllable, more relatable, more relevant to the times, more relevant to their personal feelings, more relevant to the culture that surrounds them. 
They have traded God for my God. They have traded the truth for my truth. Alyssa Childers, who uh, lives in Nashville, she's a little bit south of where we are right now, wrote a book in the last year and a half or so called Another Gospel, and it's essentially her critique of what is being called progressive Christianity. And progressive Christianity, by the way, it can cut liberal, it can also cut conservative. Progressive Christianity is any thought that it's possible to make progress in our understanding of God, to make progress in our understanding of what it means to flourish as human beings by becoming either more conservative than or more liberal than the scriptures themselves in the way that they describe God, in the way that they describe the nature of human flourishing. My truth, Alyssa Childers says, is darkness, but the truth is true whether I feel it or not. Like wheat and tares, she goes on to say, true ideas and false ideas have grown together throughout church history, and it's up to faithful Christians to be watchful and diligent to compare every idea with the Word of God and see if it lines up. When I have doubts about my faith, I don't have the luxury of finding my truth because I am committed to the truth. I want to know what is real. The Bible is God's word or it is not. Jesus was raised from the dead or he was not. Christianity is true or it is not. There is no my truth when it comes to God. And to Israel, you might say there is no our truth when it comes to God. There is only truth. And what they've done is that they have taken the truth and exchanged it for something that's not true. The truth is that a scoop of vanilla ice cream is going to be improved when you drench it with chocolate syrup. It's going to be diminished and putrefied when you smother it with mustard. They are smothering God with mustard. You know, Philip Ryken suggests that the most dangerous kind of worship mixes, it's not a complete departure from the Lord, even more dangerous than a complete departure from the Lord, is mixing, according to Philip Ryken, what is true with what is false. Remember, Satan himself comes disguised, masquerading as an angel of light, the scriptures say. Ryken goes on to say, the story of the gold calf tells us more than what happened. It also tells us what happens what we still do, what we still do. So-called progressive Christianity where you conservatively, you know, where, where, where you conservatively become more conservative about what the Scriptures say than, than the Scriptures themselves, or you become more liberal than, than, than the Scriptures speak of themselves and about God and about human nature. However, whatever progress, whatever making Christianity better looks like for you, it's not progress. It's regress. It's not true worship. It's idolatry. It is fashioning God in our own image as opposed to receiving from God as he makes and remakes us into his own image. Israel and Aaron's issue is that they are editorializing their maker. 
They're remaking their maker. They're recreating their creator, or, or so they think. And, you know, to Riken's point that this didn't just happen, it also still happens. There's a four-part process that, 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 that we as human beings can engage in order to, to edit the true and living God out of the picture and replace him with, with mustard-covered ice cream. It begins first and foremost with a noticeable conflict between who God says he is and how God presents himself in the scripture and in the way that he orchestrates everything. There's a conflict we feel between what God says and what God does. And we begin to prefer what we feel and or what our group thinks over what God says and what God does. So it begins with that conflict, but then after the conflict comes deconstruction. Based on how we feel and what our group thinks, we start to say or think to ourselves, a good God wouldn't actually fill in the blank. He wouldn't actually say this. That's what Satan said you know, to Eve in the garden. Did God really say you know, that you shouldn't eat the forbidden fruit? Did he really say that? Calls it into question. Deconstruction. Presuming to reject, presuming to resist things that God has clearly said or things that God is clearly up to. For Israel, it is a, a good God wouldn't want us to just sit here waiting for Moses, our leader, to come down the mountain. He, a good God would want us to take action because it's, it's hot down here. And a good God wouldn't want us to wait in the heat. A good God would want something to be done about this now. And so, Moses, make us a substitute. So, deconstruction, then reinvention. Again, based on what we feel and what the group thinks. Reinvention goes like this. After we say a good God wouldn't say or do this, what, what we then say is, I like to think of God as, or we like to think of God as, and then we fill in the blank with whatever it is that we're after. For Israel, it was, it was affluence, gold. It was power, the bull. And then after the conflict and deconstruction and reinvention, you get compromised and compromising leaders. Moses comes down from the mountain. This is in uh, verses 21 and following. Moses comes down to the, the mountain and he sees what's going on. And he goes straight to Moses, who, who has been deputized to sort of stand in for him while he's up meeting with God. And he, he says to Aaron, why are you leading the people into such sin? That's, those are his words, not popular words. And Aaron responds in this way. Well, first, Moses, there's the cultural pressure. You know these people. You know, he's like, you and me, we get these people. They're set on evil. They're committed to evil. They said to me, make us God. So what am I supposed to do? When it's you against them, you give the people what they want. Otherwise, it's going to be chaos. So I gave the people what they want. And then he becomes dishonest. He, he says, <laughs> I mean, I, I, 
I can't take responsibility for what's going on here. They, they gave their gold to me. Well, the truth is, he asked for it. I threw it into the fire, and then out came this calf. Out it came. It just, it just kind of happened. Well, no, he very intentionally and very carefully sculpted the calf. And then he starts shifting blame. He's already blamed the people, but now he says to Moses, the people also said to me, as for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. So Moses, it's your fault too, buddy. This is your doing. So, that's what people do. All of that. But what does God do when people do that? I'm going to make a a very non-sentimental statement that, that we might not want to hear on a day like Father's Day. But God the Father gets mad. He gets mad. And I'm going to tell you exactly what that means in just a few minutes. So hang, hang on there. It, it probably means something that a lot of us don't think it means. That God gets mad with his people. God is so clear that he is so not cool with what's going on. I am so not cool with this with deconstruction, with reinvention, with leader compromise. I am so not on board with that. And then he uses in verse 7, speaking to Moses and Moses alone, disowning language. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, not even owning them right now, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Did you catch that? Whenever we corrupt the view of God that he has given us of himself, whenever we corrupt the vision that God has given to us for what the good life really looks like, surrendering to him in all things, whenever we corrupt any of that, we end up corrupting ourselves. We corrupt our view of God, we end up corrupting ourselves. Verses 9 and 10, he says, I've seen this stiff-necked people, therefore let me alone. Those are key words. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Okay, so here we go. Here's what wrath is not. Wrath is never God actively retaliating against his people. These key words, God says, let me me alone. In other words, I'm going to give the people what they want too. I'm going to remove my presence. I'm going to allow them to live as if I didn't exist because that's exactly what they're asking for. Wrath in this regard is very passive on God's part. Wrath is God giving people what they want. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, in the end, there are two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. Romans chapter 1 unpacks this, where it says the wrath of God is revealed. When? When God actively attacks people? No. When God removes his hand. When God hands people over to their own choice. To do what? To suppress the truth deconstruct, and exchange the truth of God for a lie, reinvention. 
deconstruction, suppress the truth, exchange the truth for my truth. Reinvention. And what does wrath look like? God hands them over. God says, let me alone. But God only says, let me alone. When people have first said to him, let me alone. God will only say, let me alone, to or about people who have made it very clear that they want him to let them alone. This is vividly portrayed in Jesus' most famous parable. In Luke chapter 15, we, we think of it as the parable of the prodigal son who runs away from home for wild living. It's actually a parable that has a lot more going on in it than just a prodigal son. But regarding the prodigal son, he announces to his father, who has lavished him with a feast all of his life, who's given him shelter and safety and acceptance and embrace and belonging and a name. And he says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. It's a command, not a request. Give me my share of the inheritance in the same way that the people commanded Aaron to make them a new version of God. And this, of course, broke the father's heart in Jesus' parable because to say, give me my inheritance, is a not-so-subtle way of saying, I wish you were dead. In fact, you are dead to me. I don't want you. I don't want to live in your home. I just want your stuff. I want my truth, not the truth. My truth is a recipe for creating our own misery. What happens to this son after the father says, okay, okay, I remove my hand. Okay, you've asked me to let you alone, so now you let me alone. It's just you on your own now. And it led to misery. It said he was so miserable that he was you know, eating pig food, he was destitute, he became poor. But behind the scenes, this misery that this young man is experiencing that he had brought on himself is actually a mercy from God. Misery is mercy. Any recovered addict will tell you this. We talked a little bit about addiction last week. Any addict who has recovered will tell you that misery is actually the mercy that gets you to the place where you say, I need help that I am beholden, that I am enslaved, that I need a Red Sea experience. I need a deliverance that comes from outside of myself to be whole again. That's what happens to this younger brother in this parable. David Foster Wallace comes up, came up with a, and he's agnostic philosopher, came up with this very vivid, very biblical description of what addiction idolatry does to us. He insightfully says, everybody worships. Then he goes on to say, if you don't worship God, the true God, what you do worship will eat you alive. If it's money and things, you will never have enough. If it's body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant your body in the ground. 
If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is how wrath plays out. It's its its own consequence. It is the consequence of our own request to go it alone. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and it's been the case with us ever since. And God continues to pursue us by leaving us in a hotbed of misery until we realize the only place where I'll ever be able to find a true home is back with my Father, is back in the house of God. Everything else either immediately or eventually leads to misery. So here's, here's when, when the Bible talks about God being angry, especially toward his people, when God talks about his wrath, especially concerning his people, it is never because he is against us. It is always because he is for us. You know, parents, if you're, if you're four-year-old, start putting razor blades in their mouth, Mmm, yummy razor blades. Mmm, tasty. Or, or popping poisonous berries from, you know, the woods of Nashville. There's going to be an intensity about you that, that may look a lot like anger. Not because you don't love your child, but because you do. Not because you're against your child, but because you are for your child. God leaves Israel in a hotbed of self-centered misery until they discover that self-centeredness doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't lead to happiness and flourishing. In fact, it leads to the opposite. It's like mustard on ice cream. We need to go back home. Not retaliatory angry, anger, redemptive anger. So this is what fathers do. This is what leaders do. We see this in Moses, who's a true father to the people of Israel. He sacrifices in love rather than taking his ball and going home. Verse 10, the Lord extends an offer to Moses. I will make a nation out of you, singular. You alone. You can have all my wealth, all my treasures, all my power, all my truth, all my beauty, all to yourself. Do you want to hoard it? I think this was more of a test than an invitation. And Moses passes the test. He says, please, no, Lord. He goes on and he, he essentially says, these are my people. And these are your people, Lord. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring and land, and it will be theirs forever. A plus, Moses. Moses is showing his own knowledge of this, that if you ever want to bend God's will to your own will, the only way to do that successfully is to bend your will to his first. Spend your entire life, every single day, immersing yourself in the scriptures, immersing yourself in that which is right and true and beautiful and accurate, not more conservative than and not more liberal than the Bible's own depiction and portrayal of God and everything that flows from it. Immerse yourself in that 
And you will eventually find yourself praying things for which God's answer is always yes. Whether immediately or eventually, his answer is always yes when you pray according to his will. You want to bend God's will to yours, then you've got to do the hard work over, year, over the course of years of bending your own will to his first. Prayer is about alignment. It's not about aligning God's will to ours, but it's about aligning our will to his. And that's precisely what Moses does. He prays scripture. Remember your promises. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember what you said. Remember what you did. And then it says the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal returns home, the elder brother only wishes that God had said to him, I will give it all to you. He only wishes his father would have said, it's all yours to hell with this younger brother who has offended us, offended our family name, trampled on everything that we stand for, to hell with him. That's what the elder brother wanted. But the father, representing God, said no. We are nothing if we are not a community. We are nothing if we are not a family. This brother of yours was lost and is now found. We have to celebrate. And then here with Moses, Israel has not even returned to the Lord yet. And Moses, nonetheless, is urging God to let his own inheritance, Moses' inheritance, be shared with his rebellious brothers and sisters. We see this in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 where, where he says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Why was he anguished? Because so many of his fellow Jews had not yet recognized Jesus as the Messiah who had always been promised to them in the Old Testament scriptures. He goes on to say, if it were possible, I would myself be cut off and accursed if it meant that my brothers and my sisters would be saved through Christ. Sounds very familiar. Jesus, the true benevolent elder brother who always lives to intercede for or pray for his people, like an attorney, pleading with the Father for the defense and protection and care of rebellious people. And the answer is always yes. Not because of any goodness that's within us, but because of Jesus' willingness to become accursed and cut off for our sake as a true elder brother, the true and better Moses. Jesus would rather die than keep the inheritance all to himself. That's why Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, and we were the joy. Recovering us was the joy that he anticipated as he died on the cross. Jesus looked forward in time to the time that we, he would have us back now we get to, in the Lord's Supper, look back in time to what Christ has done in order to claim and reclaim us for himself. And so I want to turn our attention to that very thing now. But before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, you are the host and you are also the feast. You are literally the feast in front of us. 
Lord Jesus, you said that this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. Do this as often as you eat and drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, as we receive the table that you have set for us, let us receive it as ice cream smothered with chocolate syrup. And may everything in us that desires or wants to flirt with something like ice cream smothered with mustard, a bad portrayal, a wrong portrayal of you and of who you are and of what you're like. Let our hearts resist that so that there may be space in our hearts to receive the goodness that you have for us in this feast. And this we all pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. It's my privilege this week, as it always is, to remind us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of what Christ has done. It's also a remembrance of what Christ promises to do, to return and and, and bring down to us out of heaven from God to the earth a new heaven and a new earth when he returns the second time. But in the meantime, this, this feast also represents community and life together. I love the sound of kids walking in. I love love the sight of it. I love the sound and the sight of the community being a community together during this time. This is part of how we do the Lord's Supper. If if you're a church person and this is the first time you've ever been here, this might be a different way of, of experiencing the Lord's Supper. Your row will be dismissed by somebody. You'll come up and you'll surround a table with some other people. You'll receive a blessing from a leader at the table, a host at the table. I invite hosts, by the way, right now to come to your tables, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, and while you're in your seats, uh, while you're not at the table, feel free to mill around, feel free to connect with others, feel free to talk about something that the scriptures uh, said to you or meant to you today. But all that being said, this is the meal where God is both the host and the feast. And it is for anyone and everyone who's come to that place of saying, I can't find home anywhere but in Jesus Christ. That is the only place that I've ever been able to find home and there is no place like home. And you know that you found home in Christ if you've acknowledged that there's no way that you can get there yourself because of sin. But there is a way for you to get there because of his kindness and grace and his welcome through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. If that describes you, he says, come to my feast. If it doesn't, uh, please consider Uh, the things that you've heard today, and we've got all kinds of people who would love to sit down with you and talk with you more about what it might mean for you to know Christ and to come home yourself. Therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Uh, 